Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Welcome back. It's been a month since our last episode, but so much has happened that it seems like it's gone by in just a blink of an eye. Yes, and boy, things have gotten even more complicated. You can say that again. Okay, it's complicated. Uh... We've got ACA, paid sick leave, and even a special guest on the docket today. But before we get to that, let's recap what's changed since our last episode. Justin, we've got a challenge for you. Do you think you can provide an update for our listeners in under two minutes? A lot's happened, so two minutes is going to be tough, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Okay, Justin. Ready, set, go. All right, so within days of recording the February podcast, in which we talked about all the different appointments and nominations, we've seen a little bit of movement. Uh, First off, the hearing for Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch will begin on March 20th. Uh, In nominations, Tom Price and Steve Mnuchin were confirmed and sworn into their respective positions as the HHS Secretary and Treasury Secretary. On February 15th, Andrew Puzder withdrew his name from nomination as the Secretary of Labor, who heads the DOL, and President Trump nominated Alexander Acosta. Just a few quick notes about Acosta. He has his degree from Harvard Law School and clerked for Supreme Court Justice Alito when he was a judge on the Third Circuit Appeals Court. He served during the George W. Bush administration as a member of the National Labor Relations Board and a federal prosecutor for the Southern District of Florida. He's currently dean of the Florida International University College of Law, and his hearing is yet to be scheduled, so stay tuned on that. Moving on to MEPR applications that we had discussed last month, uh, we had told you about the first pension plan that was approved by the Treasury to move forward with benefit reductions, the Iron Workers Local 17 out of Cleveland. Its participants voted in favor of the reductions and cuts were effective February 1st. Since then, we've noticed three other pension plans that withdrew their applications from consideration. Only one plan, the United Furniture Workers Pension Fund A out of Nashville, Tennessee, says that it plans to refile. And on a related note, uh, PBGC is also providing financial assistance to the road carrier's local 707 pension fund, a newly insolvent plan with nearly 4,000 participants based in Hempstead, New York. Done. Whoa, you did it. I I honestly wasn't sure if you were going to make it. Yeah, I guess I lost that bet. Now I owe Julie a can of tab. Yay. Thank you very much for your confidence in your coworker, Kelly. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) Now we're on to the new stuff. The complications increase from here on out. President Trump revealed a bit more about his plans for repealing and replacing ACA. On February 22nd, he said there would be a White House plan by early or mid-March. And then uh, during his presidential address to Congress on February 28th, he gave us a few more hints, if you will, about what the plan might be. Uh, First, he did reiterate in his address that ACA would be repealed and replaced. And he listed four goals for this replacement, and that would be it would expand choice, 
increase access, lower costs, and provide better quality care. So less than a week after the address, late on Monday, March 6th, the GOP announced their bill to repeal and replace the ACA. The new bill is called the American Health Care Act, and it affects employer-sponsored health plans as well as health insurance purchased by individuals. Kelly, please tell us a little bit more about the provisions of AHCA. Okay, I'll start with the provisions of the bill that affect employers and plan sponsors. First of all, the bill would repeal the employer mandate that requires employers with 50 or more full-time employees to offer minimum essential coverage or pay a penalty. More specifically, the bill reduces that penalty to zero, which is basically the same thing as repealing it. This provision is proposed to be effective after 2015, so employers not offering compliant coverage in 2016 would not have to pay a penalty this year. Okay. From our research, we found that one of the most burdensome elements of the Affordable Care Act was employer reporting requirements. Uh, is there any impact on 1094 or 1095 reporting requirements for employers? Well, because this bill is proposed as a budget reconciliation bill, it really can't repeal the reporting requirements per se. Right. But the plan is to call for a simplified reporting for offers of coverage on the W-2 forms that are completed by employers, and that would eventually make the 1094-1095 reporting redundant. That makes sense. Uh, I'm assuming that the bill addresses the ACA limits and taxes? Yes, it does in many ways. The bill proposes a delay of the Cadillac tax, first of all. And just a reminder, the Cadillac tax is that 40% excise tax on high-value employer health plans. It was originally supposed to be effective in 2018. Then at the end of 2015, the tax was delayed until 2020. Now, this bill would delay the implementation of that tax further until 2025. As for individual health accounts, this bill proposes to almost double the contribution limit for health savings accounts, which are also known as HSAs, and those limits would go from currently $3,400 to $6,550 for self-only coverage and from $6,750 to $13,100 for family coverage. The new limits would start in 2018. The bill also proposes to lower the tax on HSA non-qualified expenses to pre-ACA levels, and it repeals the limit on contributions to flexible spending accounts, FSAs. The bill also allows individuals to use account money to pay for over-the-counter medications as they could before ACA. Plus, the bill would eliminate several taxes introduced by ACA, including the tax on insurance providers, the medical device tax, the Medicare surtax, and a tax on net investment income. Oh, wow. So what about the insurance for individuals who do not currently have employer coverage? I believe the bill proposes to drop that individual mandate that requires all individuals to have health insurance, qualify for an exemption, or pay a penalty. Is that correct? That's right, Justin. If this bill is enacted as is, the individual mandate is history. And like the employer mandate, it's accomplished by making the penalty zero, and it would start right away. Instead of the mandate, however, there would be an incentive for continuous coverage. Beginning with open enrollment for the benefit year 2019, insurers could impose a 30% premium increase on those who want to buy insurance but have had a coverage gap of 63 days or more. 
Another big change would be the introduction of age-based tax credits instead of premium subsidies currently offered to help lower-income people pay for insurance. People under age 30 would get a tax credit of $2,000. This amount would increase gradually up to $4,000 for over age 60. The total tax credit for a family would be capped at $14,000. In addition, the expansion of Medicaid will be replaced by a per capita system where states receive a set amount for each person covered in certain categories. Okay. Kelly, from what I read, uh, this bill would keep a few elements of the ACA. First, those pre-existing health condition exclusions. Uh, These provisions bar insurers from denying coverage to or charging higher rates for people with pre-existing health conditions, such as heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, etc. Yep, that was a popular ACA provision, and the proposed bill keeps that in place. Another popular provision was that age 26 provision, and that would be kept in place as well? Yes, that's right. The new bill allows dependents to be covered by their parents' health benefit plan until age 26. Uh, Getting to essential health benefits. Uh, Under the ACA, insurers were required to include 10 essential benefits in their plans, including inpatient and outpatient care, emergency room services, prescription drug coverage, etc.? Yes, that's my understanding. It does not eliminate the essential health benefits provisions except for coverage offered by Medicaid. Okay. And finally, insurers would continue to be barred from setting maximum limits on benefits paid to specific customers? Yes, that's correct, Justin. But Kelly, really, what the real question right now is what does all of this mean for employers? Right now, the bottom line is ACA is still the law, so employers and plan sponsors must follow the ACA requirements. The proposed American Health Care Act we described earlier is only proposed, and there are many steps to go through before it would become law, and there could be many changes to it. This sounds pretty complicated. Um, If you're looking to uncomplicate things for yourself, check out some of the International Foundation resources on ACA. Keep track of our latest developments with our Future of ACA website. It's free to all and available at ifebp.org slash ACA Central. And International Foundation members can also get access to webcasts about ACA at ifebp.org slash webcasts. Next topic on our docket is the DOL fiduciary rule. Ooh, you do know how to live up the conversation, don't you, Justin? That's true. I'm often described as the life of the party when it comes to benefits topics. Yeah, that's, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Well, we talked about this briefly last month, but it seems like there are some important new developments on this topic, right, Julie? Right. And, uh, but let me back up just a little bit and give you uh, a little bit of background about the fiduciary rule. Uh, It's also known as the conflict of interest rule, which I think in some respect that, that term kind of helps explain it, uh, its purpose. Now, this was a rule that was put together by the Department of Labor under the Obama administration. And its premise was that financial and investment advisors should act as fiduciaries and by doing so act solely in the best interest of an individual when giving that person advice or selling them products and services. And the goal ultimately was to protect the people's financial and retirement security. So this rules had some ups and downs um, all along the way. It, uh, I think it all began back in 2010 when the Department of Labor introduced the first proposed rule. There were a lot of comments about that, so they pulled that rule back, did some tinkering, 
uh, put out another proposed rule. Again, it got lots and lots of comments. They even held hearings to talk about it, which, um, as far as I know, is pretty unprecedented. Uh, they finally released the final rule on April uh, 6th of 2016, and it had an effective date in June. Its applicability date, however, was extended all the way out to this year, April 10th of 2017, so that it would give companies time to comply. But Julie, haven't there been already some legal cases on this topic? There have been. There had been uh, four lawsuits, and three of them have been uh, ruled on already. The judge has supported the Department of Labor and said the rule should stay. There still is one more lawsuit that's pending, and the uh, hearing is scheduled for March 3rd. Julia, I'm looking back on some old notes, and uh, I remember from the last episode, Kelly mentioning a presidential memo in regards to the fiduciary rule. Uh, have there been any updates in that regard? Right. Um, in early February, President Trump issued a memo directing the Department of Labor to examine the rule to determine whether it may adversely affect the ability of Americans to gain access to retirement information and financial advice. So in response, uh, the Department of Labor went back and... Uh, did some looking at it, and on March 2nd, they released a proposed delay of the applicability date. So they proposed a 60-day delay, which would mean the rule uh, would not be applicable April 10th of this year, but instead June 9th. They opened a 15-day comment period for interested parties to get back to them about this proposed delay. That 15-day comment period runs through March 17th. And also at the same time, they opened a 45-day comment period on the review of the rule. So that comment period is open until April 17th for people to uh, get comments to them about the rule being reviewed. Sounds pretty complicated, Julie. It is complicated. <laughs> Sounds like we've got some sort of theme going on it does, here. It does. Kelly, moving along to you, uh, I have a feeling you're going to bring out another complication to the table. Is this correct? Well, yes. I'm going to talk about leave. So you, you would think employee leave is a pretty simple, straightforward mm -hmm. topic, mm -hmm. but new laws are making this landscape more complicated. Uh. So Kelly, it was my understanding that there's already federal leave legislation on the books. It's well established. Uh, the Family Medical Leave Act of 1993, FMLA, uh, requires eligible employers to provide 12 weeks of unpaid leave for every 12 months uh, for serious health conditions for you or a family member. That's right. But the thing with FMLA is it's unpaid right. leave. And so what I'm going to focus on today is paid leave. There are basically a number of new developments and kind of almost you'd call it a new trend toward expanding paid leave. Really paid leave can be either mandated by the government or granted by individual employers. Many employers choose to offer some type of paid family leave as a part of their benefits package because paid leave can be helpful as a recruitment and retention tool for employers. But right now, there's no national law that requires employers to offer paid family and medical leave. President Trump has mentioned that he supports a plan to offer six weeks of paid maternity leave, so there may be developments in the future related to that. However, in the meantime, on the state level, there are already four states that have laws to provide paid family leave for employees who need time off to take care of sick or disabled family members or a new child. Now, recently, two jurisdictions have added paid family leave benefits. New York State 
is the newest one, um, and they just passed a law last year in 2016 and have recently proposed rules to implement this law. The program is phasing in gradually and they're starting out where employees will get eight weeks paid leave, but it's paid at only half of their weekly wage. And that amount will increase over four years to 12 weeks paid at 67% of their weekly wage. And there are also some caps on those benefit amounts. So that's New York State. And the other jurisdiction that has new rules on that recently is the District of Columbia. In fact, just this year in 2017, the D.C. Council approved a paid family and medical leave rule, and that includes eight weeks parental leave, six weeks family leave, and two weeks personal sick leave. And again, they... Um, it's not 100% of the, your salary that you get um, as a benefit, but a percentage of that, and some of it is tied to how much you make. Mm -hmm. The trick with these paid leave laws is always who's going to pay for them. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly it's usually a combination of employers and the government mm -hmm. chipping together to pay for that. But um, in the case of the District of Columbia, they're proposing that it actually be paid for by a payroll tax on employers. Of course, they got some pushback on that. So they are considering other funding options, but the council is very firm that the benefits should go forward and they'll just have to come up with a way to pay for them. Related to this, um, several large companies have been making news headlines in the past few months when they announced that they're either starting to offer paid family leave or that they're significantly expanding the family leave that they offer. And some of those big name companies are in our everyday um, language, Starbucks, American Express, Deloitte, Vanguard, Adobe, Ikea. So stay tuned, I, th I think it's a trend that um, is developing. The other side of the coin is paid sick leave. That has also experienced additional government mandates. Before 2016, only four states and the District of Columbia mandated paid sick leave. In 2016 alone, three more states, Arizona, Vermont, and Washington, required this type of leave. Plus, there are more than 30 cities and counties that mandate paid sick time. And then another footnote to complicate compliance in this area is if your organization does work for the federal government, so if you're a and you're a federal contractor, you're subject to DOL requirements to offer workers seven days of paid sick leave per year. So this complicated patchwork of paid family leave and paid sick leave laws seems to be ever-changing and can make it challenging for employers to stay in compliance. Well, what about companies that have locations in more than one state? That can add complexity, too. Absolutely, and they have to keep track not only of all the different states and what the rules are, but in the case of the sick leave, they have to make sure that their specific county or city doesn't have something on the books, you know, complicating the issue and requiring uh, leave. Yeah, that's complicated. The theme, again, is that it's complicated. Yep. Thank you very much, Kelly. On a similar note, talking about leave, we are reminded about holidays particularly a holiday that may or may not be on your calendars personally, but is probably the most popular amongst Foundation staff. I invited Stacy Van Alstyne, Director of Communications at the Foundation, to chat with us a bit about our biggest party of the year coming up on April 3rd. 
National Employee Benefits Day. Hi, Cece. Hey, Stace. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little more about National Employee Benefits Day? Is this a real holiday or is this one of those kind of made up holidays like Donut Day, just that just so we can have an excuse to party? (laughs) Well, it is a really, really good excuse to throw a party, but it actually is a real holiday, at least for all of us who work in benefits. It began with our 50th anniversary about uh, 12, 13 years ago. We wanted a day to celebrate uh, the first meeting the foundation ever had, which was April 2nd. So we created this day, and it's sort of gotten a lot of momentum since then. It was designed and still is a way for benefit professionals to stop and reflect about the impact they have on the people they work with, on the families they work with. And I think if you do stop and and kind of reflect on everything that benefits professionals do for providing health care, for providing retirement security, it's pretty amazing. And, yeah, it's also a really good time to have a a good lunch buffet. (laughs) Well, now I remember last year's Benefit Day was all about financial education. Do you have a theme for this year? We do, Kelly. Uh, This year we are focusing on one of my favorite topics, benefits communication. We continue to hear from members and professionals out in the world that getting their participants to read and really understand the communication is an ongoing challenge. We all know that benefits are really, really complicated, and it's something that many participants don't really think about until they need to use them. So we want to talk about ways to making that process easier. So to that end, we've created a couple of resources. One is a website that is a central place for all of the benefit communication resources we have at the foundation. We have toolkits, checklists, sample documents, videos, more. Everything's going to be housed in one central website. Um, And then something I'm really excited about, and I think Julie, you are too, is on April 3rd, we're going to have a live webcast with Tupper Hillard. He's one of our um, great speakers that works with us quite often. He's going to give us some examples of what is not working in benefits communication and how to fix it. I think we all feel as communicators that... um, our messages that we put out to our participants are clear, but sometimes that doesn't always translate. And so he's going to show us what might make really great sense for us isn't always resonating with our participants. And then he's going to show us how to overcome that and fix it. Well, perfect, Stacy, because you're right. Benefits communication is definitely complicated. So it's really great to know that there are some good resources out there and we are here to help. So, But enough about the work stuff. How about the fun? Do people really celebrate National Employee Benefits Day? They do. Uh, We've heard a lot of different celebrations over the years. One common theme is always food. No matter what, you really can't go wrong having some sort of food-themed festival. We've also heard people have written and recorded songs. Uh, There was one in particular that we remember that had four verses and quite an impressive chorus. Um, On a serious note, a lot of employers do take this time to kick off a campaign. Maybe it's a wellness campaign, they're hosting a health fair, Uh, retirement readiness effort, you name it, it's a really good time to put something on your calendar and get a communication campaign going. Well, and it's really fun because they'll share with us what they're doing. It's fun to get those emails. And so, okay, well, you know what I'm wondering about, Stacy, because I'm sort of all about fun and food and festivities. So what are we doing at the foundation? Well, I think, Julie, you can count on a burger bar at the foundation. Our theme this year is taking a bite out of benefits communication, and there's been an an analogy about building your communication strategy, like you might build your burger. Some people like little different mixes on there. So I think you can look forward to that. Okay, that sounds like fun. So who said there's no free lunch? 
With all seriousness, NEBD, as we call it, or National Employee Benefits Day, is truly a great time to celebrate the important role that benefit professionals play. Find the resources Stacy mentioned at ifebp.org slash benefits day and start planning your celebration. Well, that's another month in the books for us. Stacy. thank you for joining us. And to all of you, thank you for listening. This has been Talking Benefits. We'll be back in April with some more benefits news and hot topics. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.